Welcome to On The Square, a special podcast brought to you by Sapelo Square in collaboration with The Maidan. I am Dr. Saad Abdul-Khabir, Senior Editor of Sapelo Square and Curator Producer of this podcast where every month we get on the square and into some real talk about race and Islam in the Americas. On this episode, we will look at being Muslim on Turtle Island with Sadiqa Sharif Fikman and Hazel Gomez. Sadiqa Sharif Fikman is the administrator for the Biophysics Research for Baltimore Teens program, an internship at Johns Hopkins University geared towards introducing scientific research to underserved youth in Baltimore City. She enjoys writing, traveling, and is an avid reader. Sadiqa currently resides in Baltimore, Maryland with her husband and three small children. Hazel Gomez is a faith-based community organizer with Dream of Detroit, a nonprofit that uses strategic housing and land development and organizing to empower a marginalized neighborhood, a neighborhood in which she also lives with her husband and children. Hazel is a student of the Islamic sciences and also dedicates her time as an advisor and board member to various nonprofits ranging from convert care and anti-racism work to bail reform. She's an avid reader of all things about Muslims in America and is interested in the research and creation of an authentic Latino Muslim experience. Before we begin our conversation today, I, as a descendant of stolen people on stolen land, want to begin with a land acknowledgement. I acknowledge that the land upon which we live is the ancestral and unceded territory of the indigenous nations of Turtle Island, also known as North America. I also begin an acknowledgement of the histories of colonialism, imperialism, and resistance that brought us here today, that every day is Ashura and every land is Karbala. So the topic of today's episode was inspired by a recent, recent talk given by Hazel. So Hazel, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired that title and that talk? Alhamdulillah, thank you so much, Dr. Saad, for inviting us, inviting me on the square today to discuss this very important topic, alhamdulillah. So as you mentioned, right, a couple of months ago, I gave a talk titled, What Does a Medina on Turtle Island Look Like? First, I want to paint this image for you. John Tavaris Avant, a member of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe, she wrote about why North America is known as Turtle Island to indigenous tribes. And this is what she wrote. One reason is the continent's shape. The North American area has the shape of the turtle's shell with a spiny ridge, the Rocky Mountains. Protruding from the shell are the tail of Mesoamerica, the limbs of Florida, Baja California, Alaska, and Quebec, Labrador and the head pointing toward the North Pole. The continent also has 13 regions that correspond to the 13 plates that are on the turtle shell. And I absolutely love that image because we can just close our eyes and just see that the land that we live on, tread on, walk on, has this beautiful image of a turtle. So then my next question is, well, why Medina? 
the reason why Medina is because it was the establishment of a diverse and plural communities where the Prophet ﷺ paired the residents and the newly arrived migrants, where people of other faiths lived amongst one another, where socioeconomic class didn't necessarily determine where people lived, at, at least among the Muslims. So that's the beauty of our faith tradition, right, is that it spans across cultures, it's touched lands all over the globe, and it continues to spread and manifest in such unique ways. And the nation state of the United States is no different, better known as Turtle Island. So although in my talk, I focused more on the importance of urban development instead of suburban development within our Muslim communities, I also highlighted the racial lines that are drawn due to such developments. And overall, though, as I was preparing for that talk and delivered it and everything, it's left me with a much deeper question. And that question is, as Muslims and as people of faith, how do we acknowledge, uplift, and center the original inhabitants of this stolen land? Thank you um, for that, Hazel. I think, you know, when I, when I first saw the title, right, that you had um, created Medina, that's, that's also what it made me think of, right? Like, so I'm Muslim. I live in the United States. I know this is stolen land, right? And so what what do I do? Or how am I supposed to navigate it? What, what are my responsibilities, right, when I have that knowledge? And so I want to invite Sadiqa, you, to sort of speak to what Hazel said, right, in terms of, you know, what that title, right, um, means to you, to you particularly as someone who is Black, who is Native, and who is Muslim. Well, first of all, I want to thank you, Saad, and thank you, Hazel, for painting that beautiful um, illustration of what uh, Turtle Island actually is represents um, to Native people. Um, first of all, I remember the first time I ever heard that term. Uh, my aunt um, referred to the US, like North America as Turtle Island. And that's the way that she had always um, called it growing up. And I remember asking her, you know, why is it called Turtle Island? And she told me um, something similar to not as <laughs> not as uh, beautiful, uh, beautifully described as, as Hazel, um, but she referred to the shape of the United or the North American continent um, in the shape of a turtle. And I thought when I was younger, I thought, well, how did they know, you know, that it was shaped like a turtle as someone who is African-American, um, Native American, and Muslim, uh, growing up, I, I, you know, I never had, there was no duality or um, it was something that was very easily, it, it flowed very easily for me and for my family. We were, we were Black, we were Native, we were Muslim. And, you know, I came from a very supportive and very, um, close-knit community um, that came out of the Nation of Islam um, and had embraced uh, mainstream or what people would call orthodox, orthodox Islam. Um, and in our community, there were loads of people like me, you know, Afro-Native and Muslim. And when we had, we had very vibrant community life. And my mother um, was a part of a singing group um, which I know it's probably controversial for a lot of people to think that, you know, there was a, a woman singing group that sang in the masjid for 
everyone um, to hear, but that's how our community was. And we had a night of song every year. And my mother and her, um, my aunt uh, and my aunt's mother uh, were always a part of it as well. And so my mother sang this year for Muhammad Ali. He came to visit our masjid. My mother sang the song, Balalian Man, to him. Um, and then we had a fashion show. And I remember the uh, music changed and they switched and they were playing um, Stony Creek, which is a drum circle that... Um, belongs to, it's like a east coast powwow drum circle group that um my aunt's mother came in dressed in full regalia um and she walked through the masjid you know she was also muslim walked through the masjid um displaying her her regalia and that for me that you know that was normal that was just something that we did every year and every year that's what that's what happened like the powwow drums would play and I would you know feel that same beat that that strong jump, drum beat that you would hear the powwow and that kind of festivity um was no different from me going to like the powwow also as I grew up there were uh difficulties associated with being Muslim and being black and and indigenous not necessarily for my family but for uh, people who were not of that same, um, of our same background or who didn't acknowledge that within their own background, they may have been Afro-Native, but they didn't acknowledge that. And I think that growing up um, as we left our community or as our community shifted, because there was a lot of, uh, you know, I don't know how to explain, but there were lots of um, divisions within the communities at some point and our community uh, was fragmented and a lot of, um, folk with a different ideology started to kind of like pour into our, our community. And what we saw as normal, like me and my cousins and my sisters, like growing up, going to Sweat Lodge or going to the powwow or going to um, different indigenous uh, festivities and ceremonies, which were for us like very normal, it became um, something that was seen as haram or um, they were incongruous with um, being a Muslim. And um, that was difficult. It was difficult to kind of uh, walk that, walk in that path with sc the scrutiny of people who were not from my community or who were not from that, the ideology that did not see a, an issue with that. Can I ask um, you a question? Sidney? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, and so, and how did, um, and so, so, so how did the native, how did your native community experience you as a black person and as a Muslim? You know, so, like, what was that like? So, so it's interesting because, um, so, you know, my cousin Mamuna, we're, our, our family, um, I'll say this, like we, in the native community, there's a, like a, a phrase, don't make war, make relatives. So I have cousins who are probably closer to me than my actual blood cousins, like Mamuna and her mother, um, Mama Walks on Water, Mama Wapajaya. Um, our families became close because we were both Afro-Native families. And so I kind of clung to 
to her, um, I became very close to her mother, who's like, my, if you ask my mother, she'll say, that's your, you know, your second mother. So if we were all at the powwow together, you, for me, I always cover my hair. So no one could necessarily tell that, like what my hair looked like, which is a big in- indicator that you have mixed blood, you know? So um, I never really got, I never experienced any, I guess, prejudice because no one could look at me and say, oh, she's not native. But if I was with my, I remember sitting with my mom and my sisters at a powwow and my cousins and we were all just all together. And I, I had met someone there and we were just hanging out at the powwow. And I was like, oh yeah, come on, we're going to go sit with my family. And so I remember him looking and looking at my family like, Oh, that's her family. And I already knew from looking at his face that (laughs) he's now seeing that I am black and native and he's confused. So I said, uh, yeah, we're mixed. Like our family's mixed black and native. And he was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, my nephews are, are half Seminole and half, uh, half black, you know, but it was just, uh, it's always been a weird experience and I remember going to the powwow the Baltimore powwow which is full of Lumbies um like our our uh host tribe is the, the Lumbie tribe which is a mixed tribe by the way like if you um if you look at the the history of the Lumbies or any east coast tribe uh for that matter but the Lumbies in, in Baltimore are very fair-skinned um almost you know they you know look very mulatto if you if you will but um my I was there with my grandmother and my mother and sisters and brothers and cousins and my, you know, Mamuna, who's a little darker um, and her, she had her hair braided, but you can, you know, you can see the curl in our hair. And she, uh, she was on the arena floor in full regalia with, um, I think she had uh, otters hanging from her braids and, I just remember, I remember, I can, I can tell you her entire outfit. It was like this gold and red, beautiful, traditional um, regalia. And um, the, the person who was the announcer, uh, the MC, said for someone to get the black girl off the arena floor. I can't remember like the exact way it was said, but I remember that was a turning point for Mamuna. She was very young, but that was a turning point for Mamuna. And we were all kind of shocked, but Grammy went up and was like, that's my grand, that's my granddaughter. And of course, you know, there were all these apologies, but the, the damage had been done. Like, hello, this is an Afro-Native family sitting here. Like all of us like, are Afro-Indigenous, aside from Grammy, you know. Um, but, you know, it, it was something that... Um, put a very bad taste in our mouths growing up being Afro-Native in uh, Native spaces. Um, So we never, you know, after that, we never felt fully comfortable in um, Native spaces unless it was a mixed, uh, a mixed tribe. Like if you went to the Halawasaponi, the Halawasaponi um, uh, powwow or the, I remember the the time that Mamuna went to the um, Shinnecock powwow and it, you know, the Shinnecock are uh, 
tribe up in uh, upstate New York. And it's a mixed tribe. It's an Afro-Native tribe. The, the whole tribe looks like, you know, my family or something. So the first time she went there, she called the whole family. And she was like, next year, we're all going to the powwow together. And my sister happened to marry a, a man who's Muslim. Um, but his his family is Shinnecock. So um, we were all just really excited to, to find a home. Um, in a native space where you didn't necessarily feel uncomfortable being um, mixed because, you know, as long as you're mixed and I, I don't want to sound controversial, but if you were mixed with white, no one would have an issue with you being native enough, um, at least not on the East coast. But if you are clearly Afro native, then there was a stigma like there, um, was this idea that you were kind of like faking either from, you know, uh, descendants of Africans, um, you know, African-American people or um, from native people here. Um, and it was, that's, that's something that's always been uh, disquieting um, and, you know, not being able to feel fully comfortable as a, you know, so as an adult, I, I you know, I, I kind of accepted um, that I am who I am. And if you like it, that's great. If you don't, you know, that's also fine. Um, but growing up, it was something that uh, was difficult to to manage or to um, find your 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 safe space. Yeah, no, I can I can imagine. I think um you know, those are, that's the really powerful stories, right? What, what you're talking about in terms of both navigating kind of this really rich identity you have, right? And this really, in a deep, you know, sort of connection, right? To sort of really important histories, right? That make up what we call Turtle Island and then trying to navigate that, right? Sort of as a Muslim, um, like, you know, that in Muslim spaces and that in Native spaces. And it makes me think about terms, right? Um, and... So like settler colonialism, right, is the term that we use to describe, right, the kind of colonialism that established the U.S., right? And so for those who don't know, the idea is that a settler state like the U.S. is established by colonists who come to stay, right, rather than those who, you know, sort of plunder material and natural resources to take back to their homelands. And so when you stay, that means you come to live on the land which means you then have to remove the people who are already here, the indigenous people, right? And removal happens by force, right? It's violent um, and it includes genocide, right? Um, and not only do you sort of settle on the land and remove the people, but you also kind of take on indigenous customs and symbols to sort of construct the myth of who you are as a country, right? You know, um, and I think about that too. Sometimes when I'm driving, you know, anywhere in the United States and I'm looking at like, place names, right? And, and all these place names that are indigenous, like Chicago, Illinois, Michigan, right? Um, and then, but but now but now they're American, right? Or they're, they're U.S. Um, and so, and, and that history is obscured or erased altogether, right? So this is what is settler colonialism. And so I wonder if you can speak to maybe, you know, tell us, you know, who is a settler, right? Who is indigenous? Um, and what would make a Muslim right? One or the other. So that's a difficult one because to be fair, um, 
if if we're looking at it in, in black and white terms, everyone is a settler if you are not indigenous to this country. But at the same time, um, there's something else going on here. I mean, we are a new people. There, we're not indigenous. We're not African. We're not um, European. We're all those things wrapped up in one, and we don't. There's nowhere else we belong because this is where we were. We were kind of um, created, if you like, if you will, like you know, our our ancestors converged here, whether they were indigenous or whether they were enslaved here, um, or whether they were, you know, the colonialists who came and uh, and settled violently, settled on this land. But um, we, you know, it's a it's a difficult question because every I used to think about that growing up when people would say, you know, go back to Africa, or if you, <laughs> uh, I would think, well, how does that work when you are of mixed heritage? Um, so on the one hand, everyone is a settler, but on the other hand, there is a whole new uh, population of people that was created here um, that belong in the Americas. But I think at the same time, there are still indigenous people who live here and there are still settlers who live here as well. And I think that for Muslims, it's it's important to, to kind of create a language around that um, and create a culture of, of doing what's best and doing what's right um, in, in terms of acknowledging the indigenous people who, who are um, of this land. And, um, you know the erasure of of indigenous people either through claiming um indigenous as a moniker like i, I remember a couple years back i may have i think i may have called you so I, about this um because i was confused and um my sister called me and she we had we had seen this um indigenous muslims uh moniker as, as someone's social media handle and um they had like a whole blog and uh, I got excited because I thought, oh, these are indigenous Muslims. Like, this is something that we've always wanted, you know, like, so we we kind of dug into that. And and it was a, a, a white family who had, like, called themselves indigenous Muslims. And, like, my, my sister reached out. She was like, oh, hey, because I think she was friends with the wife. And she asked, she was like, oh, oh, hey, like, are you guys, in, like, indigenous as in Native American? Um, and... She said that she was just, you know, she acknowledged she was just, I won't say just, but she was white. And I was so taken aback. Like, how can you as a Muslim, you as a Muslim would do that? You know, like you would be a part of erasing the like indigenous identity, like 500 years after your ancestors arrived on the shores to do exactly that. Like as a Muslim, it was, it was just kind of, shocking to me and um I, you know i haven't I, I haven't seen them using that um recently but th it was there for like at least two years and i don't know if they changed it or if i just haven't haven't noticed it but that was their their social media handle like indigenous muslims wow that okay <laughs> so that so it's interesting because like um and i think hazel i know you want to jump in here um i think 
and I'm, I'm gonna let Hazel jump in because I have a question too for Hazel. Because like you know, I think the terms or I asked about these terms because I think the terms are important because they bring up the issues, which are much more important, right? Um, but like you said, they're also challenging, right? Because you know, I take take myself as an example. I'm black, right? I'm the descendants of Africans enslaved in the Caribbean. Right. And I think only there, as far as I know, I don't, you know, it's possible they could have been enslaved in North America, but I think only the Caribbean. And as far as I know, you know, I don't have, you know, Indian in my family, right. To quote like an Afri- African-American proverb. So I could get why someone would say I was indigenous, right. To North America, but to call me a settler, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, like, you know, I, I, it's really challenging for me. And I, I know what you're saying, right. You know, on the one hand, if you're not, indigenous and everyone's a settler right but on the other hand like there's other things happening and your point about being a new people is a really kind of i think intriguing way to think about that too right in terms of you know where we fit um in this conversation and so hazel i want to invite you to jump in and sort of you know respond to what sadiqa was saying but also like how do you fit into that conversation how do you navigate where do you see yourself yeah so that story was wild um i can understand kind of why somebody who is white would say they're an indigenous Muslim, quote unquote, because of this narrative of, well, you know, American Islam, and I'm part of the community of American Islam, and, you know, among the first group of Muslims, whether convert or not, to create this merging between culture and religion. I'm Based off of my conversations with white Muslims, that's that's I'm assuming that's where that person is coming from. I really dislike the term indigenous and I am so happy indigenous Muslim, I should say, sorry, um, in particularly for uh, white people. Um, and I'm so sorry, Siddiqua, that you had to go through that. But I'm also so glad that that person was called out slash called in um, because it's such an erasure of the indigenous experience. Uh, of the First Nations people. I also want to really acknowledge that I love how you said we we all converged here. And so, you know, for myself as a Puerto Rican and Mexican growing up in Chicago, this question of, am I a settler? Am I, I know I'm a descendant of, of enslaved Africans, particularly in Puerto Rico. I, I know my Taino and my Cuauhtecan heritage, right? But this is this question has always haunted me, um, and it made me question my identity. It made me despise even more colonialism and slavery and imperialism as a thirteen-year-old. Um, and I specifically say thirteen because I read this poem that just radically changed my life, and it's something that I'm grateful for. Allah bless the poets, right? Allah bless the poets, and I, I do want to share the poem if that is okay, inshallah. The poem is called Child of the Americas by Aurora Levins Morales. I am a child of the Americas, a light-skinned mestiza of the Caribbean, a child of many diaspora born into this continent as, at a crossroads. I am a U.S. Puerto Rican Jew, a product of the ghettos of New York I have never known, an immigrant and the daughter and granddaughter of immigrants. I speak English with passion. It's the tongue of my consciousness, a flashing knife blade of crystal, my tool, my craft. I am Caribeña, island grown, 
Spanish is my flesh, ripples from my tongue, lodges in my hips, the language of garlic and mangoes, the singing of poetry, the flying gestures of my hands. I am of Latino America, rooted in the history of my continent. I speak from that body. I am not African. Africa is in me, but I cannot return. I am not Taina. Taino is in me, but there is no way back. I am not European. Europe lives in me, but I have no home there. I am new. History made me. My first language was Spanglish. I was born at the crossroads, and I am whole. For me, as a 13-year-old, when I read that poem, it just made me cry because I read something as, as I was also going through like a spiritual crisis as a 13-year-old, right? I was born and raised Catholic. I saw myself in her words because as you mentioned, Sadiqa, like we're a new people here, living here. So for myself, I, I really struggled with that. And so to express myself, right, like in high school, I had four flags hanging in my locker. And, you know, as Boricuas, our flag got to be everywhere. <laughs> so I, the four flags I had in my locker, I had the Puerto Rican flag, the Mexican flag, the Pan-African flag. And I, I did have the Spanish flag. I refused to put up the United States, um, even though I was born here. And, and for me, it was a way to describe where I was from and kind of make sense of my identities and all of my experiences growing up in a bicultural household, families, I should say, but also acknowledging like Mexico is a settler colony. Spain is a colonizer, but I acknowledge it because I don't speak my native languages. I speak two colonized languages. And so for me, I just had gone through like all these different phases. I tried to connect more with my Taino roots from Puerto Rico. Um, I actually started learning about Atzlan and I started learning Nahua, uh, Atzlan, the land of the Aztecs. And then I learned I'm not actually Aztec. <laughs> I'm Coeltecan from the Rio Grande Valley, right on the border of Texas and Mexico. Land where last year I was able to visit and intentionally ask questions to my grandmother. And she said, my brother, your great uncle, you know, tu tío abuelo, he was part of building the Rio Grande Dam. And he died here. And right now it's a border crossing, right? So the, the border patrol is there. So I couldn't even like pause and just look at the water and the land where so many of my male relatives have died. And I also tried to figure out what West African tribes my family was taken from. I would talk to my great grandmother and her father who went through enslavement in Puerto Rico. And that's a long story of, you know, she was conceived when he was in his late 70s. So in his early 20s, he had experienced slavery in Puerto Rico. And, and then even the Spaniards, right? The Spaniards came into my family in the last 100 years. I mean, and that's a whole other conversation. And so for me, I've, I've constantly struggled. As you also mentioned, Saad, like, am I a settler? I'm not, right? Like, I'm from this land, but which, which lands? Like, I don't know where I belong. And even looking and trying to research and, and visiting places, right? For me, I do feel more at home in Puerto Rico. Um, and to me, it just could be my, my politics of the, the liberation of Puerto Rico because we're still a colony. Um, 
But this is something that I've, I've constantly struggled with. And even being a visible Muslim woman, you know, and the assumptions people make of me, right, just because I cover and, and not knowing, like, all this history that I carry with me. So this is something I, I struggle with navigating. This is something that I teach my children on their multiple identities and how they can live their fullest um, as young Muslim boys and inshallah turning into Muslim men. And one thing that I really appreciate about this question as well is there's this saying from Imam al-Ghazali where he says, those who know themselves know God. And even in the Quran, Allah reminds us that he blesses people with knowing themselves and in turn getting to know him. And so for, for us to have these conversations, I pray that there is this blessing in really digging deep into our hearts and being conscious of the land that we live on as a way to, inshallah, draw closer to Allah, but also like do something about it. Thank you for that, Hazel. You know, you both speak to the idea of us being a new people, which is powerful. But a version of that is also used by the settler state to justify its existence. Here, I'm thinking about melting pots. So that brings me to my next question. Have you seen settler logic shape Muslim communities? For example, I was listening to a Native American podcast, and they were talking about how the term pioneer is a settler term, which makes sense when you think about it. But it's also a term we use to honor our elders. So so the, okay, <laughs> I'm going to start with pioneer because, you know, that's, the term that is used in our community for the people who um, opened up uh, Islam for their their community, their people, like their um, and um, so I want to be. I think we should be very careful about canceling terms because it's it's a word and it has a meaning, and one meaning is one who first settles in a territory, but another meaning is a person or a group that originates or helps open up a new line of thought or activity um, or a new method uh, or technical development. And I think that is the, the meaning of pioneer in our community. It's not someone who like settled into a territory. And I do understand that there are triggers for communities who may hear the term settler uh, I mean, sorry, um, pioneer as something different, but every word has like a multitude of meanings. And I, I don't see a connection to our use of the term pioneer and like settler colonialism. Um, I think it's the other meaning, which is, and it, 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 it fits perfectly for what they did um, and who they were for us. Um, and I, don't like I don't see another I, I mean it's been used for the past like probably 70 years at least in my community we just celebrated 70 years I don't see it going anywhere but I also don't see it as I don't see it in the, the same way that you know in the 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 sense of you know the first the connection to settler colonialism um so i don't really have an issue with that word but i do have an issue with other forms of settler colonialism um being used religiously um 
against um, Muslims in general um, in, in America. Um, I remember the first time I met a Lakota Muslim at ISNA and I was so excited. Like somebody was like excited to introduce me to this person and I was super excited to meet her. And so when I did, we were talking and I was, you know, just trying to find out, you know, what, whether she, number one, whether she was the only Muslim in her family, whether she was married, whether she was, you know, had children, like what their, their family life was like. And it dawned on me when having this conversation that she had a colonized idea of religion. Like she had come from a, a Christianized Lakota family who had rejected Lakota um, spirituality initially and then merged that with being Muslim. And so I couldn't relate to her on that. Like I, we could relate on the fact that we're both, you know, like indigenous Muslims, but her way of viewing Islam was like a co-opted Arab way of being Muslim. And it was, it's sad, like it saddened me. And I remember talking to my, to my aunt about it when I came home. And if you, you'll notice that my aunt comes up a lot. I talked to her and she said, you know, Sadiqa, like what happened to our people is tragic. You know, like what happened to our people here, the first wave of colonists that came, came to the East Coast and obliterated us. And everything that was on the East Coast, all the all the East Coast tribes are, are scrambling to, to figure out, to remember or find someone who can hold on to our traditions or who can teach us our traditions. So um, we on the East Coast, like thankfully through the, through the American Indian movement, learned traditions from the Lakota. So this woman, that's why I, I was so like enamored. Like I thought I would be enamored by her because I thought she would have this like great way of blending Islam and, and, and um, indigenous culture. Um, but, you know, we, a lot of us are a broken people and, and that same settler colonialism or that um, same ideology is used when spreading Islam here in, in America, where one culture dominates and their idea of being Muslim dominates. Um, and it leaves no room for creating an, uh, like a, an authentic Muslim identity or cultural identity um, for people who are not of the dominant culture that is you know, spreading this ideology. And that person, the person that I spoke to happened to you know, learn her Islam through that, that uh, that kind of ideology, and it was, it was kind of disappointing for me. Um, and I, I thought then, like, there's something that we should be doing. <laughs> I mean, I was probably around 14 at the time, but I was thinking, God, there's something that we should be doing to, um, to introduce indigenous people to Islam in a way that is like, not going to erase who they are as a culture, like not going to erase. And, and at the same time, I had this kind of, I know this is a, it's a bit of a, an issue for me, this idea of um, 
missionaryism is also an issue for me. Like I haven't ever been able to kind of um, reconcile how missionaries typically erase um, or replace the the culture that you know they're coming to quote unquote like teach and, and, and proselytize to either Christianity, Islam, some sort of you know mainstream religion. But I didn't, I couldn't reconcile being a part of that. So I I, I think there there is a need for a conversation around that. So the the question of to stop using the terms indigenous and pioneers, I I I really appreciate the nuance of the definition for pioneers. Um on I also have never looked at when I hear the word pioneers within our community, I immediately immediately think this is a black Muslim community or this masjid is predominantly black Muslims. Um and I, to look at it as a settler uh, definition is, uh, never crossed my mind. Um, now, the term indigenous Muslim, though, or indigenous Islam, I have always had an issue with that because that feels like an erasure of First Nations and indigenous peoples of Turtle Island. Um, and I see, I can understand, I guess, as it being a qualifier for stolen people on stolen land, enslaved Africans that are here, that were brought or forced over. Um, but again, just like Sadiqa mentioned the story of like the white Muslim that used the term indigenous, like, nah, you can't, you can't use that term. Um, so I, I do have an issue with that in particular. Now, the settler logic, as you asked Saad, within our Muslim communities, like, I mean, it's it's an oxymoron. This is not, this is... Land acknowledgement and and respecting the people of the land is something that is within our Islamic history. Really briefly, I want to mention the story of the Khalifa Umar ibn, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. He had moved, he had moved people, you know, uh, this was before he became um, Khalifa. So he was talking to the people, just talking to the elders of the community. And one elder had said, Oh, you know, 80, just in conversation. Oh, 80 years ago, when you Muslims said that you were coming, y'all arrived a couple days too early. Umar ibn Abdulaziz is like struck. And he's like, excuse me? He's like, yeah, you all arrived a couple days early. I mean, alhamdulillah, we're glad you're here, but, you know, we're letting you know. In that moment, he told all the people who had either migrated or the descendants of, and was like, we, we got to go. We got to pack up and we got to go. And all the Muslims packed up and started going, even though some of the people that were there had already converted, but the people who had migrated. So they started, they're starting to leave and the elders, so I'm like, you know, the elders are in shock. We're like, well, where are you going? I'm like, well, no, we broke our promise. Even though this was 80 years ago, as Muslims, we broke our promise. We came too early. We got to go. And the elders, you know, they asked permission and they're talking and they, you know, they, the, the people, the original people of the land were like, no, please do not leave. Do not leave. It, it's fine, please. But that right there was bravery. And that right there shows us that it's within our tradition, within our Islamic history overall, that there is disrespect for the original people of the land. 
And another thing that I really appreciate about the Khalifa was that lands that were conquered through victories, he refused to divide up the land among the soldiers because he there was this fear. He did not want the concentration of, of different lands within a very few hands. And that goes into like land rights ownership or land rights and, and whatnot. But again, there's this notion of keep the land within the state, keep the land to those that it belonged to and work together, right? Um, for everybody, for, for the common good. And so I, I really appreciate that you know, that story, because we are not meant to um, ignore the people that originally come here. And it goes back to it, ignore the people that were originally here, because it goes back to the first question of why Medina on Turtle Island? What is our responsibility? All right. Um, so thank you so much, Hazel, for that. Um, you know, this indigenous um, term, I um, actually had a conversation recently with Imam Talib Abdul Rashid, who is the imam of the Mosque of Islamic Brotherhood in Harlem, New York. Um, and he was responding to an article I had written on Sapelo Square about this question. Like the, I call it the politics of calling ourselves indigenous. And uh, one of the things he said um, to me, he said, you know, it's important to understand or to recognize that the, the, the use of this term has maybe many histories. And so one way, which I hadn't thought of, I hadn't heard before, but he was saying, you know, part of the ways that Black people and Black Muslims in particular might are using this term is in a recognition, right, of relationships before Columbus between Africans and the indigenous people of the Americas. And so that there's a, so that, so that the kind of use of that term is actually not meant to erase, right, the indigenous people of, of North America or the Americas, but rather to identify a relationship between these people before the Europeans, which I thought was an interesting, um, layer right to the conversation i mean you everyone doesn't have to agree with that but i think it's important um to note that and also in talking with him as well um just about the ways in which it's sort of in the 20th century at least right the different ways in which black muslim communities have been quite um uh and black muslim communities these black communities particularly sort of black revolutionary communities have been quite aware of right the relationship that we should thinking about our relationship to indigenous communities in the United States, right? And thinking about the alignments and the solidarities, right, between these two communities um, and, and and these questions of land. So I think so. I think so. We're not going to get in that today. <laughs> we don't have time for that. But I think um, I wanted to mention that alternative perspective, but also this idea that I think you know, black communities and black Muslim communities um, have been. I think navigating this um, in a very kind of um, overt way that maybe may not be the case, or not maybe, from what I understand, it's not the case when we think of other Muslim communities in the United States. Um, and part of the whole point of that, right, is that in this whole conversation that I want us to have today is that, you know, we have to understand who we are to each other so we can be better to each other, right? Like the Quran says, and and not in a kind of kumbaya kind of way, but in a way that involves this kind of truth-telling, reparations and reconciliation. And so, Sadiqa, I want to sort of end with you. And I want to end with you, and I want to ask you, just, you know, someone who, again, you know, comes from the position of being Black and Native and Muslim. You know, when we're thinking about this question of being Muslim on Turtle Island, right? What, what, what would you want to see? For me... 
I would love to see uh, African American Muslims or Black Muslims or Muslims in America in general actually um, acknowledging that this is land that does does not belong to to us, and even for Indigenous people, we don't believe that this land belongs to us either. Um, but acknowledging that there were people here before you emigrated here. I re- like, I, I have this issue come up for me a lot, like where, you know, we're asked to champion causes that are, you know, thousands of miles away, you know, and not that we should not be championing, championing those causes, but their causes right here, those same causes, like if, if you draw a parallel to Palestine and the people who are right here having their land taken away right now. And, I, and earlier you mentioned the Mashpi Wampanoag, um, Hazel, my, uh, a very good friend of mine was the one who was working on that case for the Mashpi uh, Wampanoag um, to get their land and trust um, so that they are able to have their own sovereign territory. Um, but this was, I mean, what, this is this year. Uh, well, not 2021, but in 2020, they were still fighting for the right to have sovereignty over their own land. And the United States government at the time was still trying to take it away. And, you know, the uh, Keystone Pipeline, um, the Water is Life movement um, that, you know, has been a a huge issue for Native Native people, the water rights movement and and being able to um to say what happens to have have authority to say what happens on their land and to reject um drilling and and um things that would cause negative uh environmental impact on their land to be able to reject those those um those things and and i feel like muslims should be championing those causes and i i i know that we were there was a huge um you know uh cry from the muslim community at that time to support um the the people who were on the front lines fighting against the the keystone pipeline pipeline um but there that needs to be those need to be our our causes um and also you know i was uh, i was watching on um instagram of course this is you know where we see a lot of news these days but this was there was a celebrity um an african-american activist who had posted something on her page about a lakota elder um on the rosebud reservation who needed help because he had 19 people living in his very small house that was um they had holes in the roof they had um, no heat in you know North Dakota, um, and all of these people relied on him, and he's the spiritual leader of his family, so he's not able to um, work or earn money for his family. Um, and so, I would like to see Muslims championing those causes. For me, until Native people have. Um, the same freedom and justice and liberty and economic stability um, as other communities in, in America. 
I feel like that's always going to be a cause that we need to be championing. That's going to be like a something that we will have to answer for. You know, what did you do for them? What did you do for the people who were who whose land you lived on? Um, what did like? How did you give back, and how did you empower them? Yeah, thank you so much, um, Sadika, for that. Um, And you know, I think uh, you know this. We really need to have this one podcast episode is not enough time <laughs> um, to really kind of um, really get into this, but I'm, I'm really happy that both you and Hazel were joined us on the square today to begin to sort of, you know, begin to open up the conversation. Cause I think you had mentioned this earlier, this is a conversation that is long overdue and it's not just about talking the talk, right. But also there's work to be done. Um, so thank you both. And um, before we, before we close today, so we have a question we're calling you. Know, we have a question we want all our guests to answer. And so I'm going to ask you first, Hazel, and then we'll go to um, Sadika. So the question is, if Black Islam had a theme song, what would it be? So if Black Islam had a theme song, I had to channel my, my children's energy <laughs> and think of all the requests that they make uh, for me to play for them. So I'm going to have to say Khalil Ismail's 99 Names. My sons absolutely love that song, but also it's the way that he translates the names and attributes of Allah that make it absolutely relatable. Uh, for example, I love when he says, Al-Jalil, the majestic, you are the fixer of messes. Thank you. And Sadiqa, so if Black Islam had a theme song or what's your Black Muslim theme song? So um, growing up, as I said before, my, my mom was in a singing group along with another other um, Muslim sisters and brothers um, from our community. And there's one song that hands down, no matter what, it it's the song that we always ask them to sing. If there's, you know, like a reunion or if the older community, like the pioneers <laughs> get together. Um uh, and it's called Balalian Man. And I know that there was like, I remember growing up, there was once we encountered other Black Muslim communities that the term Balalian became uh, a point of contention. Um, but uh, the song is called Balalian Man, and it was written by Brother Derek Amin from our community. And my mother sang the lead. And um, she sang, this is the song she sang to Muhammad Ali when he came to our. Night of Song. Mm-hmm. man, you were a man without a name, but your God loved you just the same as other men. You stood for many nations tall, your perseverance proves it all. You'll live again. How could you, after all you've been through, want to give up right now? Just submit, give your will to Allah, and let him show you how to live right now.
thank you for tuning in to this episode of On the Square, Real Talk on Race and Islam in the Americas, a special podcast brought to you by Sapelo Square at the Maidan. Thanks to our guests, Hazel Gomez and Sadiqa Sharif Fichman. You can find more information about what we discuss, including links and more, by visiting sapelosquare.com slash onthesquare or themaidan.com slash podcast. Our theme music was created by Fanatic on Beats.